0: Welcome to episode 129, Lifting Latinx, a primer about working effectively with the Hispanic and Latino population, featuring Victor Flores, licensed associate counselor. Make sure to subscribe to be alerted about future episodes by Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. Hello to our listeners. My name is Beth Irias, and I am honored today to be joined by Victor Flores. Victor is joining us from Arizona and he's a licensed associate counselor. And one of his specializations is working with Hispanic and Latino uh, community members. Victor, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you, Beth. I'm happy to be here. I uh, appreciate being able to talk about important issues related to culture, language, diversity, um, Hispanics, Latinos. I think when we have discussions like this, uh, different pieces of the dialogue speak to people. So I, I really am happy to be here. Yes.
0: Wonderful. Thank you, Victor. Before we dive into this topic, we want to note for listeners that this interview will discuss racism, classism, colorism, and other sociocultural concepts, including things like racial slurs and acts of violence. Some of this discussion may be emotionally and intellectually challenging to engage with, and we want to provide advance notice. Um, And for our listeners who don't know, yes, I am a white person and I'm also part of a Hispanic family. My children are multicultural. My husband is uh, from his family, uh, is originally from Nicaragua. Um, So this is a topic that's very close to my heart. Uh, Victor, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit more about you and how you came to have this specialization with this particular population?
1: Well, I'm not sure if it was by by, uh, mistake or by coincidence, but... What happened is I've worked in a lot of systems, whether it was with the courts, residential care, psych hospitals, shelter care. I've just worked in behavioral health. I've worked in systems most of my 30 30 plus years. uh, And I got to tell you, I could see uh, different pieces kind of speaking to me. I paid attention to where different entities were missing the mark on working with people that were uh, of diverse backgrounds. And that kind of stuff is what, I would always tell myself when I am able to, once I get all my education and my initials and all that stuff, maybe I'm able to uh, address some of these things because I know that as a child, when we came to the United States uh, from Mexico, part of the what I always uh, saw that eh, we we put up with stuff. we just we were as kids sometimes interpreting for our parents, which doesn't make any sense. So those kinds of things just kind of stuck with me over time. And uh, when I was in a position to be able to teach or actually uh, put together some materials so that professionals could do their jobs differently, uh, I did. So that's kind of how I got catapulted into doing the work in the area of diversity.
0: Wonderful, I'm glad to have you spending this time and sharing your expertise with us. Why don't we first start on um, discussion about the different terms for this population? So we can talk about Latino versus Chicano versus Hispanic versus Latinx. Victor, shed some light on what these different terms mean.
1: I'm not sure if I'm gonna shed light other than talk about some of the categories. And again, I just wanna preface the whole thing saying, different people identify in different manners when it comes to where they come from. Some people might say, well, you know what? I'm Nicaraguan. Others might say, hey, you know what? I'm Salvadoran or I'm, I'm a Peruvian. They, wherever they may be from, they might, they might talk more about where they're from or their nationality, whereas some might say, I'm part of a group. I'm more Hispanic. And some will say, wait a minute, what's the difference between Hispanic or Latino? And again, when you're talking Hispanic, it is more of a cultural piece that comes from, we'll just say Spain. It has that background, and some people will will really uh, stay stay uh, uh, focused on being Hispanic. While the Latinos, for example, it's more of a region, Latin America. You're talking about sometimes the Caribbean. Uh, you're talking about Central America, you're talking Mexico, you're talking South America, and that's more Latin based. So again, Hispanic is really might be more based on the culture and the language. And uh, then uh, most recently, a term that's, that's uh, come into the mix is Latinx. And Latinx uh, is more more of the younger generation is using that terminology. And it has, it's more of a it's not uh, gender-based, and it's it's an inclusive term, non-binary. And, and, and part of that is just to make sure that people feel included and that it, it's a, it's an all-inclusive term that people feel comfortable with. And other people might say, well, I don't know about that. So for the sake of this uh, conversation that we're having, I'd like to uh, use Hispanic and Latino Uh, interchangeably or together, but uh, I would just say that that's what I'll use just for this conversation.
0: Perfect. Thank you. And um, for people who are not familiar with the Spanish language, when Victor talks about um, the non-binary meaning of Latinx, because uh, in Spanish language, O is masculine and A is feminine. So Latino versus Latina. So saying Latino automatically implies a, a male dominant um, version of language. So Latin X, that X is opening it up to a non-binary. And the last term, what about Chicano? That was a term that I heard quite a bit, say 15 or 20 years ago, haven't heard it as much of anymore.
1: So that that's a term that's used a lot with Chicano with uh, Mexican Americans and Chicano if you had to put a label on it because even within our own group we sometimes uh, put labels on ourselves. I got to tell you if you if you go to Mexico and uh, you're Mexican American you might be referred to as a pocho and a pocho is an incomplete Mexican And now if you come, to the US, somebody from the US, a, a Chicano or a Mexican American might refer to you as a huacho. And those are that's also a, a derogatory term, which uh, in in English might be the equivalent of wetback. So those those kinds of things, they're not positive, but they're terms that are used. Now with Chicano, that has a lot to do with having uh, the movement of the fifties and sixties around braceros and all that stuff. That's how it kind of started, but it had a lot to do with, uh, the movement here in the U S. So it's not usually a term that is, uh, that is a, to describe somebody from Mexico. It's usually a Mexican American, and it has a lot to do with a, a mindset, a movement. Uh, and, uh, again, when you start thinking about the sixties movement, about, uh uh, the brown berets and things like those are movements. uh, And uh, that's the kind of thing that has some politics behind it sometimes. But for the most part, Chicano will refer to a Mexican-American, somebody born here.
0: Thank you. That, I was unaware of those different nuances. I'm sure many of our listeners were. Thank you for just breaking that down. So let's transition into conversation about what the Hispanic and Latino population looks like in the United States in terms of demographics. Share with us some of those data points.
1: Well, some of those data points are, are really important in that, you know, between uh, 2010 and 2019, the U.S. population growth was uh very impressive. But what was more impressive is half of that growth was attributable to uh, Latinos and Hispanics or Hispanics and Latinos. And, and that's important to know because that's the fastest uh, minority group that is, uh, that is growing the fastest. And part of that uh, means that it's it's uh, been 61 million, I think, in 2019 is the, the figure that we're looking at with Latinos, which means that almost two out of every 10 uh, people in the uh, persons in the US are Latino. So that, that's, that's pretty impressive. And, and here's another uh, important uh, factoid about one in five Generation Z voters, is what they're called, are Hispanic, Hispanic and Latino. So what that means is that that's quite a lot. That means that the, there's a whole new force of voting coming in the door that's younger and that really has some political clout. So that's really going to be felt as we as we grow and expand. In the U.S., you know, 42% of the languages spoken by immigrants, for example, is Spanish. So that, that's another, when we get to the, the, the immigrant part and we talk more about that, that's another piece that needs to be kind of uh, figured out.
0: Thank you. That's very interesting. Um, out of curiosity, and I don't know if you know the answer to this question, In our culture, the way the United States kind of breaks down race, ethnicity, that's a whole separate conversation of race is just a construct. But to table that conversation, and if we're looking at the categories, at what point in time does someone stop being Hispanic, (laughs) if that makes sense? And I ask because this is a conversation that I've had with my husband and our children are part white, part Hispanic, but so if they should have uh, or have children with someone that's non-Hispanic, then it's this interesting kind of idea of of increasing multi-ethnic, multicultural, multiracial families. Do you know from a research standpoint where that lands? Or I'm curious what your thoughts are on it.
1: Well, having, having taught it in college, in workshops, in trainings, you name it, one of the the, the, the two big things that come out of that are it's contingent upon assimilation and acculturation. So assimilation is the traits that you take on from the dominant culture, wherever you may be. And the thing is, um, so, so in, in this particular group, we sometimes might even refer to it as Americanization. And it's how much, how much of that you take upon yourself and uh, it might even say, "Oh, he's very Americanized," or 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 he or she. And uh, so those those kinds of things really matter. Acculturation, on the other hand, is how much do you retain from your original culture? So you think about this. Um, let's say somebody's fifth, sixth, seventh generation. Uh, we'll just say American, because I don't. I'm not sure you ever really uh, stop being something. But they might still do pinatas or something like that. And next thing you know, that's that's something you retained. So there's a there's a lot of different uh, pieces to this formula, but the acculturation and assimilation really sometimes determine uh where somebody is on that continuum.
0: Thank you, I appreciate that. Um, so starting with looking at health and, and mental health disparities with this particular population, what are some important points for mental health professionals to know in terms of access or utilization of medical and mental health services?
1: Almost immediately, the first thing that comes to mind are the social determinants of health. And, and again, this has to do where people are born, where they live, where they learn. Uh, where they work, how they play, where they worship—all these, all these are other determinants of of health and and uh, determine quality of life. So that leads me to the next piece, which is common. Th- th- what you said, common health disparities that come to mind. And one of the things that I that was really interesting to me uh, uh, when I was looking up some of these uh, disparities are that usually the people that are not born in the U.S. are healthier than those Hispanics and Latinos that are born in the U.S. And some people say, why? Why is that? For example, for example, let me before we get there, let me give you some um, compared to, to whites, compared to non-Hispanic whites about uh, there's a low there's a 24 um, percent of Hispanics and Latinos are more poorly controlled high blood pressure. There's 23% more obesity for Hispanics and Latinos than whites, 28% less uh, colorectal screening. So there's there's, there's there's overall less approaches to health and there's less health in general. So some people might say, why is that? And some of the factors are literacy, literacy rates, soci- low economic status, language issues, lack of access to care. These These are very... Uh, concrete and tangible pieces that contribute to some of these health disparities.
0: When looking at those health disparities, you're talking specifically about Hispanic and Latinos that live in the United States. Um, How about for mental health care, knowing that part of this is also cultural? And- As you and I discuss this, it goes without saying that obviously these are generalizations. And as you said at the beginning, some people really identify as Hispanic, some people really identify as Nicaraguan or Puerto Rican, You know these different cultures that are very specific to them. And so we're generalizing here. But when we're reaching for that multicultural therapy book, what does it tell us about the rates and the likelihood of Hispanic Americans pursuing mental
1: health treatment? So, so what I'll do to make it a little more, uh, maybe maybe it'll be a little clearer. The the uh, factors that I just mentioned, literacy rates, for example, um, they are, and these are generalizations. So I'm not at all saying this is this is the the way it is, hundred uh, percent. But for the most part, we aren't too far from the truth. So literacy rates. Let's say, for example, people coming in. Uh, to this country uh, to make a better life, and I'm not talking about authorized versus unauthorized people. I'm talking about people coming to make a better life. Usually, you're not going to get the the bachelor level, the the master level, the doctor level coming in to make a better life. That's not the typical. Typically, you get uh, people that are here to work, and they'll take uh, what they call it non-skilled labor, labor, but I call it all of it is skilled. Trust me, I've done. I've done construction. It is skilled, but anyway, so not a lot of not a lot of schooling is necessary. So literacy rates really matter. Sometimes these people uh, that are seeking help uh, may not be able to even read where to get help. They may not even know and, and get the, the different uh, written information or or even the signage to be able to know where to even look for help. That's that's just one example. Social economic status, if somebody doesn't have the means, the means to get there, whether it's transportation, whether it's uh, having to work as opposed to to be able to pay for stuff or eat rather than having to go to a clinic, they're going to eat before they do. So these kinds of things, this basic survival skills are going to take precedence over seeking mental health services, for example, or even substance abuse. So these are our t- are priorities, language language is a is a big one because many times uh, the failure to communicate means failure to to help so that, that kind of it kind of transfers in the same way and access to care if we open if we open a really nice clinic to help the let's just say people uh, on the lower socioeconomic uh, level over here in the foothills but they're located over here on the south side guess what? they may not be able to get there no matter how good your services are. So there's a lot of and those are just like examples for each one, but all those are contributors that sometimes we might have the best intention and the best ideas, but they they don't they they don't uh transfer. I'll, I'll give you an example having been uh, I, so so I'm here as a as a, a specialist, not a uh not an expert because I think I'm an expert, on am making mistakes. That's about it. So here's what I'll tell you. One, I, I remember uh, dealing and uh, in, in interacting with a clinic that said, "Hey, we, we got the best services. We have child care. We have food. We have everything for people to come in to get our great services and uh, um, anxiety groups they were they were doing in Spanish. And uh, but nobody's coming in, and they said, we can't figure it out. And I said, Hmm, what, what's this about Because The place was great, and it was located perfectly where it's supposed to be." uh bus lines, everything. So I went in and I said, hey, let me look at your flyer. Let me see what you're putting out there. And uh, I look at the flyer and the first thing it says is if you have uh these these and it was it said depression anxiety but it said trastornos is the word trastornos which means it's a it's a way of saying these diagnoses but it's it's an ugly word trastornos and a lot of these people didn't know what that meant so they said oh, I don't even know so nobody went so then I said, why don't you change that word to platicas, which are talks? Just say, hey, we're going to have these informal talks on this stuff. And they were up to their ears and people within a couple of weeks. So that doesn't make me a magician. That, that just says, hey, wait a minute. Let's make sure we know how to engage people. That's just engagement, connecting and knowing, hey, here's, here's who I'm trying to help.
0: I think that's a really interesting point you're making about this linguistic awareness and how you can have the best of intentions, but if it's not communicated in a way, the one that's always made me laugh is the, the car model of Nova. Um, and it mean, Nova, doesn't go Nova. in Spanish. So the Nova does not does not go. So it's not going to go well with anybody who speaks Spanish. Uh, but I, I appreciate your example about that. Um, when it comes to again, generalized kind of cultural factors. Obviously, different cultural groups have different beliefs about mental health treatment, um, or, or, you know, whether or not we talk about feelings. I know, uh, part of my background is Irish American, and that is not a culture that talks about their feelings. That is very much like, <laughs> we don't discuss that, just keep, you know, keep walking, look down. And, and if you're going to talk about any of those things, then you will do so in confessional uh, in your Catholic church. So tell me kind of some norms about out, mental health treatment working through problems talking to strangers about problems when it comes to this population
1: again it's a mixed bag because you're talking as a matter of fact i'll share i do i do a, a lot of forensic group i do screening assessment and ongoing treatment as a, as a clinician of sex offenders that that's part of my specialty but i do it in spanish and uh, all over arizona and part of uh, what i consider is uh the their levels of because not everybody's from Mexico. I have uh, Cubans, uh, Puerto Ricans, uh, Central Americans, and uh, a few uh, South Americans. I don't have any Spaniards and or or from other parts of the world, but mostly again. But the majority are Mexicans, and I just kind of determine where they are on a cultural in a cultural place. But I, I consider uh every everything you're saying. Some are some are more prone to, to open up. For example, my Cubans, they they almost all of them were in the military and uh, they're not they're, they really have uh, some issues with talking about their feelings. It's really difficult. But in general, when we talk about machismo with the with the group in general, you have a lot of machismo and guys that have never talked. They've never opened up. And uh, in the group, when I have them in a group session, is the first time they're ever talking about feelings because most of the time they were shamed uh, for talking about feelings and made to feel like less of of, uh, of uh, less male uh, because they were doing that and were were ridiculed. So when they come into a group like that, it's oftentimes that they they are accepting and when they start talking about you know how they feel or or what they what they experienced uh it's new to them and it's welcomed it's a welcome thing and i i want to put this out there as well i facilitate a a chicano uh, group but it also has uh a few uh spanish language uh individuals that are not chicano in that group that's uh, a gay group it's a gay group of men um that uh is able to come in there and share and that in, that inclusiveness is in there a safe place to talk about that and they talk about having to not share their own not just coming out and all that but just not sharing feelings because they're ridiculed so they're not only are they hiding a piece of their personality now they even have to hide the fact that they can't feel so there's there's like layers of stuff so there's a lot of dynamics
0: In general, if a doctor said to somebody of Hispanic or Latino descent, you know, maybe you should talk to somebody, how do you feel like that's received? And again, we're just talking about generalizations, but when we look at cultural norms, like this whole idea of talking to somebody, you brought up shame, is that typically viewed as a really shameful thing to seek help outside the family?
1: You know, so getting outside of the groups I facilitate into more mainstream groups, Talking about anxiety, depression, the different the different things that we we get out there and talk about. Some families are not as amenable to opening up about stuff and want to keep it within the family, or use the words such as "Hey, I'm not crazy, I'm not local," and uh, they'll, they'll they might use that kind of terminology. But I got to tell you, there's an informal way of really uh, creating rapport, and and usually, so again. It's not small talk at all. They actually have a name for personalismo, so 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 that's real personal conversation with somebody. And I'll give another example. Uh, you know, I, I was working with uh, with a family uh, doing home based uh, services, and during during this uh, interaction, I I saw that all the interaction was going through a, a person on the couch, and and I wasn't let in the door <laughs> because it's like okay, I'm here to help, but. I'm not, you know, we, our intentions are good again, but it doesn't mean that I'm going to get in the door to start working with the family. But I saw that when they opened and, and, you know, they had the door cracked open. They, uh, they, uh, they weren't inviting me in, but I saw that the interaction and the dynamic was through somebody on the couch. So I was able to peek in and I saw that it was an older gentleman. And I, if I had to assume it was a a grandfather and uh, I don't know, I said something in Spanish, uh to him because everything that was that was conveyed to him was in spanish and he said hey where are you from and i said i'm from nogales he goes sonora I go, yes and i said uh i see you guys are here from from uh from caborca caborca is a place in sonora and i said oh yeah i said uh, i i know i know the place he goes you do yes he goes yeah i can i can tell you your accent and uh before you know it probably within 10 minutes i was sitting doing family therapy with them uh But it was real. I didn't just make that up like a car salesman. And and again, it's got the name personalismo.
0: So for listeners who do not have that rapport advantage of sharing a cultural or ethnic connection like that, what do you think is really critical, particularly for white practitioners, to approach? to appropriately and respectfully begin to establish rapport um, with anybody of Hispanic or Latino descent, whether they are first generation or sixth generation?
1: That, that's an awesome question because it's about asking questions. Any of us, sometimes we might feel not compelled to ask questions and that limits us. And that's I learned that a long time ago when I was a young probation officer. Sometimes I acted like I knew what I was doing and I didn't. And uh, as a result, I would step on my own feet. So as a res- I, I started getting better at asking questions and, and really being informed. So I'll give you another example of how to proceed if you may not be. So, so uh, two versions of it. So um, I had I an had a, a, a older gentleman, uh, a, a sex offender, and uh, he, he uh, when he was referred to me, the doctor that referred him to me said, "You're not going to get anywhere with this guy. He just doesn't want to talk about stuff. He keeps on saying he something about a curse." And I go, "Okay, all right, I'll talk to this guy." Anyway, so I, I meet him, and he goes, "I know why I did what I what I did. How why I acted out." And I said, "Really? Why don't you tell me about?" It? And he said, and he told me, "Well, I had a I had a curse cast on me, and uh, and uh, as a result, I victimized." Uh, the 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 person I victimized, and I said, "Oh!" And uh, fortunately, I knew about limpias or cleansings, cleansing ceremonies. So I said, "So did they do the whole cleansing ceremony, so that you could boom boom." boom? I, I just I just went off and, and asked him, and he goes, "Yeah, I did." I go, "It sounds like you're ready for treatment," and he took off like a rocket and treatment and did great. I, that's a true life. True, that's that happened. So I thought about that. What if it wasn't me and I didn't know about it? I would have asked questions. I would have said, so what does one do when when you have a spell cast on you like that? What what are you supposed to do? And he would have told you, well, you have to have this whole ceremony. It's a cleansing ceremony where you have to. Uh, there's these eggs they do, and they did. so he would have told you everything. And when you get that information, the practitioner would say, really? So you did that? Yes. Well, it sounds like you're ready for treatment. Yeah, I think I am, and and I think you would have had the same result. But it's just a matter of meeting the, the it's it's the old adage meeting somebody where they're at. It really is.
0: One of the questions that I have for you, and I have experienced this. I um, growing up in California took many years of Spanish, I'm exposed to Spanish before I was part of a Spanish speaking family. Um, so I had some knowledge, but certainly not enough competency in Spanish to be doing therapy and often had to work with a translator. Can you tell me a little bit about the best way for non-Spanish-speaking practitioners to work with an interpreter in the room with them, and how to do that? And I, I remember when I the first time I did it, I'd never done it before. I really didn't have any training or coaching in how to do it. And it's like, well, who do I look at? Do I look at the family? Do I look at the interpreter? Like and it, and it just kind of took me some time to adjust to having this this third party that I wasn't accustomed to.
1: So there's different levels of intervention intervention with regard to interpretation and even translation services so they kind of go together with the with the office of minority health they put together these things called the class standards and there's 15 of them but most places that receive uh, federal funding adhere to these standards because they use them as a guide but also I'll tell you most places that are doing a good job with with uh their cultural proficiency plans or cultural competency plans kind of incorporate these. So here's what I'll tell you: if it's a good uh, interpreter and they've been trained uh, according to to uh, these these uh, let's just say guidelines, uh, then they'll they'll explain to you. Hey, you don't need to look at me. I, you just look at them. Like like I'm not here. I'm their voice, and that's good. That's good. I'll also tell you. The places that are more advanced not only have the interpreters in person. That's great, but that's not always possible. So sometimes you have telephonic interpretation services as well. And those, those again, those are good and, and they're great. There's n- there's very few things than having a practitioner. Having a practitioner that speaks, na- uh, that speaks uh, Spanish is great too. But even then, uh, entities have to determine what is their level of Spanish. Are they good enough? You just said it. Are they at a point where they can actually conduct and facilitate facilitate in Spanish? So I would just tell you, I think all those factors come into play. Even a native Spanish speaker like myself, I ask questions when I, i tell you the truth, I'm, I'm from Northern Mexico. And uh, uh, even some Southern Mexicans, I'm like, hey, no, what does that mean? I ask questions, or, or somebody comes in from Yucatan, and it's like, okay, what is that? Because Mexico's big, but even then, when I work with Cubans, uh, Puerto Ricans, people from other countries, Central Americans, I ask questions, and, uh, and the worst thing that can happen is I get it explained to me. So I, I, I continue to learn, even within, but the thing is, I feel really comfortable in my native language. But at the same time, it doesn't mean that I know all the nuances and all the different regionalisms.
0: Absolutely. And you mentioned briefly kind of this distinction between interpretation and translation. What's the difference between those two for our listeners?
1: Interpretation is the spoken word, whereas translation is a written word. So when you see uh, flyers, when you see uh, Media—it's different things that are written down. That's that's translation. So sometimes they'll say, "Hey, can you translate this document?" And it might be a release of information and they need it in in Spanish or something like that. that's translation. Now, if somebody's sitting there with you or or needs something uh, to to convey a message verbally, that's interpretation. And again, part of what the class standards and the Office of Minority Health did is because I shared a. a a situation from when I was a kid where I was in the room uh, doing interpretation for my for my mom and, and how, how inappropriate is that. Not only am I a little kid with limited language, but you're being brought into this adult conversation that you have no business doing. and that that's just not only is it possibly traumatizing, it's very strange and, and scary.
0: Um, I am nodding uh, because I've heard that from so many of my Hispanic and Latino friends and family members and this idea. Um, the other one, I have so many questions, but one of the questions I have for you, from a cultural standpoint, going back to this idea of acculturation, assimilation, one of the things that I've seen is if you know when some, when someone's family comes to the United States, there are different levels of how much they acculturate or assimilate, and one of the challenges becomes: what do you do with the original language? And so, you know, I have friends that their parents said, We're not going to speak any Spanish at home. We are only going to speak English. The kids are going to school. They're learning English. Well, they'll, you know, the kids will help the parents speak English. And then on the flip side, you have the other families that say, Okay, the kids are getting English in school. We're going to speak Spanish in the home. I've noticed, even on the outside of this, as a white person standing outside of a Hispanic family, that difference in These two Hispanic groups, if you will, the Spanish speaking Hispanic and the English speaking Hispanic. Can you speak to that? And and I think some of the what I've experienced and seen is kind of in group judgment um, of who's more or less Hispanic because of how much they speak Spanish or what accent they have. You're nodding. You're laughing. (laughs) Tell me about that.
1: Well, you know, it's funny because I have uh, first-hand experience of uh, all of that stuff. I don't know. But my I have cousins that were born in Mexico, and their parents didn't want them to suffer in the United States. They learned English uh, not very well, and their Spanish not very good. So they're stuck in the middle with nothing. Th- to this day, they're my age, and they're, they're, both of their languages are terrible, terrible. And uh, so... It's up to the household how they want to approach it. Because the thing is, again, if you want to retain your language, because you know, and again, some of us, I know my parents, my dad was a farmer, my mom was a, a school teacher, but just like a, one of those uh, uh, school teachers in a house, in a, not, not, a, not bachelor level or nothing like that, but in, in Mexico, like that. And uh, I'll tell you, uh, they saw value in retaining both languages, learning English while we were here, we were immersed and retaining Spanish. So they saw value in both of it, but they had vision because they were really focused on making sure that we were able to master uh, both languages, but not everybody. Some people say, I don't want my kid picked on, so he's going to speak English only. So there's a a lot of schools of thought on that. But yeah, within the group, now you get people that are very judgmental. And I used some some, uh, derogatory terminology a little while ago saying that sometimes... Mexicans that uh, refer to to uh, Mexican Americans or or Latinos, Hispanics and Latinos that don't speak Spanish as pochos, which is uh, again an incomplete Mexican. That's a that's a derogatory term, and and vice versa. If you don't speak uh, English very well, you you might get made fun of. So all, all those all those really um, kind of impact. Really, with the people I work at least, and, and I've worked over the years, because I used to work residential with, with kids, Hispanic and Latino kids. And uh, it really does uh, do a number on uh, on self-esteem, on self-worth, on uh, self-image, all those things and, and how they go in the world and how they interpret the world. and all It really matters. It really matters. And sometimes we don't know the damage that those kinds of things can, can cause.
0: I'm glad that we landed here and kind of talking about this topic, because again, it's something that I've seen and noticed for years. And as the mother of mixed race, multicultural children, even my son has commented, and he's only five, that he feels like he's not white enough to be white, but he's not brown enough to be brown, is how he says it. Um, that he's aware that he's this combination and doesn't quite fit in. And and I should note, we have another podcast specifically talking about multiracial, multicultural identity. So please listen to that. Um, but th- this stuff is really complicated. And what you and I haven't talked about yet, and, and we obviously need to, Let's talk about the discrimination and racism that has been faced by Hispanic and Latino people in the United States.
1: Yeah, I think that, that, that again, with the political climate that, that's been out there, and I'm not here to talk about uh, uh, politics per se, this and that, but racism is a reality. As a matter of fact, I know that I was looking at a number of things. I'm, I'm going to do a, uh, for a counseling agency on, on Friday in Mesa Uh, I'm going to do a training and part of it is uh, we're going to talk about how diversity training was just most recently in the less uh, uh, with the less administration, it was banned and it was seen as anti American propaganda. And I'll tell you uh, that was, that was weird. And I had discussions with some of my colleagues and said, what, when we've been trying to really move this forward for years, as a matter of fact, um, let me see. Uh, I think if I had to choose how many years, I think it's been 25 to 27 years that I've been doing training in this. As a matter of fact, I, in college, I taught criminal justice and sociology, uh, junior college and university level. Uh, and I can tell you, uh, even in criminal justice, I would always do the um, uh, uh, diversity diversity groups with law enforcement and all that other stuff. And and uh, even at probation and police academies, I would train that. But not because I'm this uh, touchy-feely, uh, uh, racial justice warrior. No, it's none of that stuff. It's because it improves outcomes. It improves safety. And 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 let me let me even be more specific. I gave this huge. Well, it wasn't huge. It was maybe eighty people in a in a training at the with the courts there in in the Phoenix area. And uh, I got to tell you, most of the time when this kind of diversity or cultural competence training gets put on the table, people look at it and go, "Oh no, here we go again," or whatever whatever people think. So having having been a probationer just so you know, I was a corrections officer. Then I was a surveillance officer. Then I was a, th- so that was the beginning of my journey. And as a helper, believe it or not, it was a hel- that, that was my journey. That was the beginning of it. So I arrested people as a helper. I don't know how, but it, it worked. <laughs> so uh, anyway, so, so here's, here's a, here's kind of what, what, what would happen. So I, I renamed the workshop that I was doing to officer safety training and I had judges, prosecutors, uh, uh, Corrections officers, a police officer in there. So I start the the whole uh, the whole workshop. It's about an hour uh, and a half, and it's it's uh, they they're gonna get units, uh, court units like CE units, but uh, they're they're court. They get court units anyway. So um, I started, and one of the judges up front, a real powerful man, says to me, "Mr. Flores, wait, 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 wait." He stopped me about maybe ten minutes, and he goes, "Um." This is cultural confidence training, is what it, what you're doing. But you said this was officer safety. But so he's speaking for everybody. Everybody's back there going, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I said, you know, let me ask you something. When you know who you're working with, you know their background, you know where they're coming from, you know their perception of law enforcement, uh, and 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 you have more information about them. Are you safer? And he said, yeah, you got a good point. He said, proceed. And I went on to have a really good workshop where people participated and didn't judge me as a a touchy-feely, warm, fuzzy social justice warrior. Not that that's a dirty word, but I just want to put it out there because sometimes when I cross into the world of law enforcement, it has a different flavor than we do in behavioral health and stuff like that. And I can tell you, it's very possible to maneuver in all of them and do good work and get great outcomes in all of them. I just, I have the courage to get out there even when I think I might get tomatoes thrown at me.
0: I agree with you with this idea. Of sometimes it can be hard to get buy in for cultural diversity topics. And I appreciate the creative angle that you took there. Tell me more about, I mean, you mentioned the, uh, kind of socio-political climate and the impact okay. we know right now as you and I are recording this it's January oh excuse me it's February 2021 and we know for example that covid has struck um black people and in general, people of color significantly more than white people. Um, there have been far more deaths in the Hispanic and Latino community than in the white community. Can you speak to some of that? Um, and what practitioners need to keep in mind, not just relative to COVID, but how all these factors are impacting basically that person that's sitting in your office or in, you know, right for right now is on the other side of the computer screen or the phone.
1: Yeah, I, you know, with, with COVID, and, and uh, everything associated with it, the way people are internalizing all this really powerful information, uh, it, it's important. And, and when it comes to Hispanics and Latinos, a lot of them uh, are just you—you uh, you got everything under the sun in terms of who believes, who doesn't believe, who wants to do this, who wants to—and the way they get gather information. For example, a lot of the a lot of the patients with, with whom I, I uh, work, they'll talk to me about what's going on in the towns or in the cities they're from in Mexico and Central America or what they'll say, here's what they're doing. this is how they're patrolling. this is how they're enforcing the, ma- the masks, uh, the mask mandates. So that's, that's a topic of discussion. But another topic of discussion is how people are really uh, managing the, the loss of life how they're managing all this really scary information that's coming at them. And they talk about their fears. The guys that, that had just got out of prison, for example, that I'm working with, they'll talk about how they were really scared being locked up. And, and if they got COVID, they would probably not ever see their families and die far away from where. So all those things become a real issue. But at the end of the day, we're talking about fear. We're talking about how they manage uh, uh, these these really tough things in their life, but they're very, very real. So again, that's part of being able to, to really put it out there and inviting them to say, talk about this tough stuff.
0: Mm. So the invitation, and I mean, it's incredibly tough stuff. And we started this podcast with you talking about some of the uh, physical health and mental health disparities. And we know now how much those pre-existing conditions play into things like Covid, And we're also learning more and more about how trauma and generational trauma impacts medical uh, medical and physical health. So one of the pieces I want to ask you about, too, is like, what about immigration trauma? I know that's a whole conversation, and we could talk for a very long time, but giving the cliff notes, let's talk a little bit about what immigration trauma is and how practitioners need to conceptualize and approach that with clients.
1: So I'm going to I'm going to backtrack to with the last thing you said about uh, mental health and and physical health and and I just want to say actually my my uh, my doctorate is based on that it's it's uh, it's a doctorate in behavioral health and it talks about how both are connected and that's nothing new for any of us that have been in the field. We know that they they're connected. Except now there's a there's a, not just evidence-based information that says that. Now there's whole programs devoted to it, and we're we're doing a real uh, good job of capturing that. So I just want to make sure. So I'm not trying to plug uh, my my PhD in this. I just want to make sure that we know that that's that's a a very real piece and that now that they're connected the work that's being done is a lot more on point. Mm-hmm. So now let me let me float over to immigration. So immigration is a hot hot button item. It's one of the the biggest ones out there. And again, one of the things that I know that I've often been asked about, how does immigration affect the way some of our uh, patients seek services that's very related so here's what I'll tell you let me give you the let me let me talk about the vulnerability of the people that are considered immigrants so I'll, so for the sake of this I'm not going to use the word illegal I'm going to use the word of Authorized and unauthorized immigrants. That's what I'm going to use. Illegal just doesn't sound right. As a matter of fact, when when I came to the U.S., I had a green card. They were just called green cards, and then they had a. Uh, they just said alien on it. After that, now it, I think it says resident. I think it says maybe it says resident alien. I don't. I'm not sure because I I got rid of mine at 20 when I when I naturalized. But I still am. I dual citizenship. I have. Citizenship in both countries, my passports and everything, so I I go back and forth as a as a voting citizen in both countries, and uh, so anyway, so so again, one of the things that I think is is really important is to understand that for an for an immigrant, they have to bump up bump up against a lot of uh, preconceived notions about what an immigrant is, so. If somebody is an unauthorized immigrant, there's this generalization and stereotype that unauthorized immigrants are using up all our resources and all that other stuff, depending on what news media you're listening to, what people you're talking to, and a lot of people have opinions about this, and uh, there's a lot of people that don't know the details, so If a person does not want to be detected, remember this, if a person doesn't want to be detected, they are not going to seek services. They're not going to go, oh, here, let me give you all my identifying information. It's just not going to happen. There are programs out there in the world that don't request anything, but for the most part, any government services, there is not going to be a lot of detection of these persons, and they're going to try to remain low profile. So, again, that's a myth. And again, does it happen? Are there some some fundings and some things that are uh, invested and, and, and uh, used with with people that are uh, unauthorized? Yeah, there are there are programs, fortunately, because the thing is, it's it's really uh, important to also understand that even on uh, in individuals that are authorized sometimes feel like they're not served for whatever reason, whether it's language or whether it's just the fact that they're not able to get their point across. So those kinds of things really matter. And if you look at this, for how vulnerable immigrants in general are, unauthorized uh, immigrants, according to the NCIC stats, don't usually report crimes that are committed against them. They can be victimized and they don't report because they don't want to be detected. So here's here's what I'm really saying. there's a There's a many instances where unauthorized immigrants do not report crimes that they should have reported. There's also instances where they don't seek help when they should have sought uh, help, whether it's medical, whatever it may be. So they're just on their own solving all their problems without the resources that other people uh, or individuals use in the world. So this isn't meant for anybody to feel sorry. This is meant to say, this is the reality of the situation.
0: I'm glad you bring up those realities because I think it's easy to overlook um, if if you were just born in the United States and, and you're used to that, this whole idea of immigration trauma may not be something you've really thought about. Um, speak for a minute specifically about what immigration trauma is and what you've seen in practice. Cause I think that's, again, like that's a whole different conversation for another time, but I think it's important for practitioners to really start working with this concept of what it actually means for a family. And now that we know more about the concepts of generational trauma, how this plays out for generations, not just for the the person or the family that immigrated.
1: So immigration trauma really has everything to do and I just gave some examples of of what that uh looks like. But fear of deportation, for example, some imagine, imagine living your life in fear. Living your life in a way where you make all your decisions based on not being caught. That includes sending your families to school. That includes the way you your your journey to work. That includes Making sure that there's certain things that you don't do because you might be found. All that has this trauma piece to it, and even then, you pass it on to your kids. That know that if their parents are deported, let's say the kids are, are born here, if their parents are deported, they're on their own. That's super duper trauma, and uh, that that is that that's big. That's big. So all of that goes with how how uh, how we do outreach, how we welcome people. How we, how we as practitioners say, you know what? This is a safe place. This is what you don't have to worry about here. I was working in a clinic uh, where they didn't request any any uh, uh, documents or anything. People just came in the door and they were helped, and they were they were so grateful. They were so happy, and uh, they were from all over the world. They were. It wasn't just Mexico and Latin America. They were all over the world. And they were so happy. I remember working with Koreans, uh, with 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 people from Hungary. You name it, everywhere. And they were just so happy because there are a lot of people out there living in the shadows. And it and it, it, and it's when you you feel exposed that you that you run the risk of going in, into a situation that you don't know if you can get out of.
0: Yeah, um, many years ago uh, when I worked in a adolescent residential facility, I worked quite a bit with the families of uh, children and young adults who had relatively recently immigrated. And I, some of the stories were just devastating. And, and as we're talking, just remembering some of the things that these kids had been through and that their families had been through, just even just as part of their journey to immigrate, which again, that's part of a whole conversation about what it, just what that experience is like for somebody. I remember telling their, you know, hearing their stories and it was just heart wrenching um, for what these kids had been through. Um, When we're talking about the average practitioner, whether they're working in private practice or an agency, what are the pieces that you really would like them to know of how to increase their cultural competence with this population? Um, But also, I'm curious, like what are the do not do <laughs> factors where it's like, you know, don't do this, don't say this. Like what are those things you probably know them? you're you're nodding and laughing as I say that.
1: so there's a there's a, you know there's um there's a bunch of things and and again, this is this is an ongoing infusion of of education that we get as we stay in the field. And uh, I know that i've I've tripped up so many times, and usually I learn sometimes I got it takes me maybe a second trip to. To, we're falling down that to get me back up. But for example, sometimes one of the biggest things, especially with Hispanic and Latino uh, uh, fam, um, patients, and I'll tell you it's inclusion of the family and somebody might say, that's with everybody. No it isn't. No, it isn't. And this is with this particular group, the family is huge. And don't get me wrong, I'm not stereotyping. not everybody, but for the most part, in my experience, I'll tell you, I work with thousands of people thousands in the years i worked and family is incredible so that's that network that familial network is is big so that's that's a big Deal. So inclusion of the family. So somebody might say, well, I'm person centered and I'm this and I'm working this. Well, you know what? That's great. But make sure you include those other pieces because this person relies on some of this network and just pay attention to that. Remember, I gave the example of that family that kept on on interacting with their grandfather that was the 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 really the decision maker and the shut caller. But I was going to work with the family, but he is the one that's making the decision. So I was looking at that, and to be honest, he wasn't super involved in the in the family session. He wasn't, but he's the one that, sh- that called the shots. And I go, that's there it is. But that's 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 a big important piece. So including the family, and uh, that actually has a name. Let me see. I I put it here. Oh, here it is. It's it's actually they call it. Familismo, familismo it's one of the elements that's put out there in working with again some of these things are things that we're, that, that we have been working with in, as counselors and practitioners but familismo so it, it actually has a name what I just mentioned so another one here's another tip if you're working with an older population the elders almost in every group there's the elders that you really have to respect uh, but in this particular one if you're even if you're a Spanish speaker and you speak to somebody in, an, in that informal tool, Tú, tú versus usted. So usted in, in, uh, in Spanish, it's like in English, you say sir or ma'am. It's very formal and it's very respectful and it's usually used with the older. Or if somebody's got, let's say, some, some a doctor or something like that, you you speak to them in usted, it's a very, very respectful thing to do. Now, if you just come in and say, hey, do this and do that, guess what? All the gains that you might have made in working with somebody, you might have just lost because you don't know about that respectful uh, part of this interaction. So those kinds of things, they might seem uh, minute at first, or not like not like a big deal. But I gotta tell you, sometimes they carry so much weight. They're the they're the deal makers or the deal breakers. So I I think that those are just two two of the tips that I'll, I'll put you out there. Another one. I'll give a a third one because I don't want to, I sound like a salesman now. Right. So another one is if, if you're really wanting to connect with the people with whom you're working, what I would recommend is you establish rapport before you start. Establish a rapport, And that doesn't mean, Hey, what do you think of the weathers out there? That's, that's small talk and it's ridiculous. I'm talking about the very, very personal things. For example, before, uh, and I just know this because I know this, but I'm saying it as a tip. Where before I I would ever start when I was younger, an intake with somebody, I wouldn't just go into it. Okay, okay, so tell name, day, uh, that that that's not personal. That's not personal at all. It'd be like, okay, you know, let's we're gonna go do those things, but let's, let's 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 settle down a little bit. Let's let's get to know each other a tiny bit, and it's not small talk. It might be as simple as saying. Hey, I I noticed that uh, your your last name is um, is Hernandez, uh, and and I noticed that your 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 uh, your accent. Are you from Sonora or Sinaloa or Ah? Oh, no, I'm from I'm from Guanajuato. I'm from Durango. I'm from whatever. And and now you have them talking at least. And, and now you really start uh, digging in because they want to know about you, too. So the encouraging of asking questions is part of it. But at the same time, I can't tell you how many times somebody would say or I would say, yeah, but, you know, I'm from Nogales, but my family is from uh, Santana and Imuris. And they'll say, "Oh, really? Do you know that Lopez is from uh in like like there's two people everywhere, but yeah. Do you know that?" And they'll say and they think, "You know, you're talking with the, with them, but there's this dialogue that's already established, and then you can go ahead and transition into what you need to do. And you can even have your whole your whole routine and your whole uh uh the way you 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 do that figured out, which includes saying, "Okay, you know what? That that's good to know." Well, you know what we have to do here. Um, uh, you came. These are the things that I that I'm going to have to do. And what do you think about them? So asking questions and get get a dialogue going, and and that's a very respectful way to approach. Because the thing is, I can't tell you how many times I have dealt with profession. Uh, I'm sorry, with practitioners that have been cold, that have been uh, just. It's disrespectful, and but it, it hasn't been in their head because it, it's just been disrespectful. As a matter of fact, I did a county uh, a training there in Ventura County. Uh, and, and one of the things that I remember in that training was that at the front desk, at the window where people come and check in, the workers were just really cold at, at this particular clinic. They were cold and not welcoming. And it doesn't mean somebody needs to be coddled or somebody needs to be hugged when they come in the door. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is common courtesy, customer service, and, and, and speaking to somebody in a respectful manner costs nothing. That's what I'm saying.
0: I think those are really good points, Victor. Thank you so much. Um, I'm glad that you just laid those out there from the use of, you know, two as informal versus usted or usted, ustedes. And that idea also of being really deliberate in creating an environment that's warm and welcoming. Um, you mentioned the class standards, um, as we wrap up this interview, tell us a little bit more about what class standards are and what they mean. Um, and then I'd also like for you to speak to our listeners about some resources if they want to gain further education working with Hispanic and, and Latino individuals and families.
1: Class standards are from the Office of Minority Health. They're uh, divided into um, governance, uh, communication and language assistance, which is one that just engagement, continuous improvement, and accountability. So they're they're divided. So there are 15 standards. They're divided into all this, and they serve as a blueprint for agencies that are really trying to to catch up because this is something that's been uh, around a little while, but not everybody's used it. Why? Well, I have opinions of why not, but I'll tell you. Some places, it costs money. It costs money to have interpretation services. It costs money to train staff. It costs money, but here's what I tell you. It costs more money not to be prepared. That's more expensive when you miss the mark. That's more expensive because now you open yourself up to not serving people, to being sued because you weren't able to serve people appropriately. I think that's more expensive than actually saying, let me invest some money and doing good, good work. And uh, so I know I sound like I'm on a rampage, but that's, that's kind of what I, what I do.
0: Wonderful. So again, for our listeners, um, the class standards are designed to help improve competence with minority populations and CLAS, which stands for culturally and linguistically appropriate services and health and healthcare. Um, And Victor, for our listeners, what are some resources that you'd recommend? Trainings, books, websites? How can our listeners get in touch with you and learn more about your work?
1: You know, the ATTC network is one of the ones I used to work for, and they're really good with in terms of free resources. Everything's public domain. You can you can pull a bunch of resources from there in the area of medicated assisted treatment, uh, substance misuse, you you name it, cultural competence, you name it, you'll find it there. Again, it's public domain. Also the National Center for Cultural Competence, which is another place I was able to do some work with over at Georgetown is an excellent resource for cultural competence. They even have screening tools for agencies and individuals. So there's, there's, there's a number of places that are really focusing on doing some excellent work. And those are just a couple. Um, Again, I have my own website, uh, Cieneguita Human Services, but I'll just tell you, I do my work and I do it all over the U.S. and Arizona, uh, but I always remain very centered and very connected to my clinical work.
0: Wonderful. And for listeners who want to get in touch with you, Victor, what's the best way for them to do that?
1: Uh, Again, Cieneguita Human Services is one word. Cieneguita is C-I-E-N. E-G-U-I-T-A, Human Services. Better yet, the best the best way would be to call me. <laughs> if it's a, the word the, the word is a, a little bit uh, complicated, Sianeguita is. Uh, I would tell you, give me a call on area code 480-789-0905. And we have a discussion on whatever it is that uh, you may need or just to come and shout at me on anything.
0: There you go. The Peter just uh, gave you his digits.
1: <laughs> I did. My, digit, my digits are out there, but you know what? They're on my website as well. So it, they're not—they're public domain. <laughs> they are public domain. So if I if I get any any questionable calls, I'll know that they probably came from here.
0: That's true. They came from Clearly Clinical. Um, Victor, this has been a really enlightening hour with you. Thank you again for joining us. I think you shared so much information and also brought some of your own story and your clinical history that I think really enlivened this discussion. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you very much. This has been great. And I, we probably could have talked forever.
0: I, I agree. And I'm, I'm guessing that we're going to need to do this again because we have a lot more we need to talk about. Um, so for our listeners, don't worry. We're going to keep keep these topics going, keep inviting uh, new and wonderful people to join us. And maybe Victor will join us again in the future. I'll, I'll ask him. Um, thank you so much, Victor. It was great to have you.
1: Thank you. And it was great to be here.